Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, everyone. This is Devraga Personal Finance, Episode 40. And in this episode, we'll discuss some basic rules and principles that you can use to find out how much you can afford when it comes to buying a home. In Australia, housing is very expensive. We're one of the most expensive countries in the world when it comes to buying homes and also cars. So there's such a thing down under as called buying too much house or house poor. Now, for those of you who are car fans, um, just recently, Tesla has announced that they will be ready to ship cars to Australia, which is right-hand drive model, the Tesla Model 3. Americans have enjoyed this car for the last couple of years, and finally, we get to order it online. There's not much options in terms of ordering it online, but it's really exciting times. One of the disappointments in Australia is that our electricity infrastructure for electric cars and battery-operated cars is not great. But it's a start, so it's really exciting. So if you're into cars like I am, um, this is something that you want to keep an eye on and see what the prices of these electric cars, uh, whether they go up or go down over the next sort of five years or so. So it's really, really exciting time. Now, if you're also new to um, my podcast channel, basically the motto is simple. Um, I believe that if you pay yourself first, um, try and save up to 20% of your after-tax income and pay it to yourself, that is put it away, and then you take that money and you invest it, um, and you invest it for the long term. And then out of the dividends that you get from those investments, you always reinvest those dividends. You never withdraw the dividends. Until, of course, you hit retirement age and you do it again and again and again for about 20, 30 or 40 years and you automate that process and the chances are you're going to end up retiring very, very wealthy. Now, before we get on to the main topic, which is the basic principles and rules of buying a home, now we're not talking about principles and rules of buying a home in terms of location, you know, housing inspections, dealing with real estate agents, etc. because I've already talked about that in previous podcasts. We're more talking about financial rules, which you can implement in your personal finance to try and find out how much you can actually afford. What is a safe borrowing capacity for a person that wants to buy a home? And for overseas listeners, most of these strategies I discussed is uh, relevant for your country as well, um, particularly if you're living in a Western democracy. But in Australia, um, obviously, this is much more relevant for us. Um, and some of these rules um, are localized. Okay. Um, so before we get on to the main topic, though, a couple of articles for discussion. Um, first of all, the RBA, the Reserve Bank of Australia, has recently dropped interest rates to 1.5%, which is the lowest on record. Is that a good or a bad move? Well, in, in my view, it, it, it sort of has good and bad elements to it. The good element is the first home buyers 
um, are more likely to be able to afford homes. Now, if you've been reading the media and trying to follow political parties and their sort of aim to try and make housing more affordable in Australia, the first-term buyers have largely been locked out of the market, particularly over the last sort of five years or so. So I think this is a good move for first-home buyers because it means they're more likely to be able to afford to buy a home, particularly in one of the capital cities in Australia. Investors will also be very keen to buy homes, um, basically because they now know that the repayments will be lower, which means they can potentially start affording homes. And of course, in Australia, the advantage is that if you have multiple investment properties, you are um, eligible for negative gearing. And I've talked about this in the past. Negative gearing is basically you offset any losses um, for property against any uh, taxable income, and you only pay tax on whatever the difference is. Um, now, does it help affordability by reducing reserve bank interest rates, or does it just entice new buyers and drive up prices? Uh, it's a controversial question. If you ask some people, it says, well, it just means investors are going to step in and buy more homes, in which case it negates the advantages that it gives first home buyers. So I think there's a bit of give or take there. And of course, in all of this, sellers and real estate agents are very, very happy because hopefully they get higher prices, um, which means the real estate agents make more money and sellers are happy because they're happy to sell for higher prices. So it might spark a little bit of boom. Um, I read an article um, on MSN Money, um, which basically uh, was saying that you know the RBA interest rate declines is probably not going to make much of a difference. Um, so following May, the data shows that Australia has experienced the largest housing decline on record. There's been 20 months of consecutive declines. Uh, in May, it declined by 0.4%. So, so far from peak to trough, there's been an 8.2% price drop since the downturn, which has been the longest on record since the 1980s. And the predictions are that it will hit 10% or more in the near future, probably towards the end of the year. So they're sort of saying that towards the end of the year, it's probably going to be the lowest price in Australia for a long time, and then possibly even pick up afterwards, depending on what, what happens in the economy, et cetera, et cetera. So why is that? Why, why do they think that the housing market is probably going to be still lower despite the interest rate um, uh, reductions by the RBA? Well, it's because Australia's in a very unique situation. We've had more than 25 years of successive growth in the economy, GDP growth, but the economy is running out of steam. Unemployment might rise, and if there is no cash flow for citizens, that is money coming in through jobs and opportunities, then that means they're unlikely to spend money, which means the economy starts slowing down. Um, and therefore, if they're unlikely to spend money, they're going to start slashing um, spending money on things like houses, cars, and all the big ticket items, okay? They're going to try and save money for the essentials, the clothing, the food, um, the rentals, the utilities, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the other way of preventing uh, the housing decline further is, you know, how do we stop the, the prices from, you know, spiraling out of control like it did in the United States is by um, easing lending standards. So the lending standards in Australia have been really tight over the last you know, couple of years, particularly since the Royal Commission. It's really hard to get a home loan. You really need to you know, prove every little aspect of your income, which you know, in all honesty, I tend to agree with because if you're going to buy a house for half a million dollars or whatever it is, you know, the bank's got to make sure that you have the capacity to pay it back. 
Um, but um, some people are advocating, well, it's been too strict. We've got to be a bit careful. So let's just ease the lending standards, which has been recommended. Um, so, uh, so in the past, people that haven't been able to get loans, perhaps if we've just been too strict, maybe we can ease it a little bit so they can you know, get the loans and therefore you create more buyers. And if you create more buyers, then you're going to create more sellers and therefore you, know, you can prop up the housing market. So in my view, I think that's pretty dangerous. I think uh, lending standards being eased is always um, a bit of a red flag because you want to be able to borrow money, but you want to be able to repay the money and the lenders have to be careful because otherwise you end up with a United States situation where you have unscrupulous lenders just lending to people that just cannot afford to buy homes. So at the moment, I think in Australia, we have a triple whammy. So the house prices have fallen uh, by 8.5%. Um, people have less income and employment opportunities and job security. And as a result, the economy is starting to contract, or that's the concern. Uh, and this results in more house price falls because maybe people lose their jobs and can't pay the mortgages that they've already borrowed on their property. Um, and as a result, there's more house price falls because, you know, there's not enough buyers and there's not enough sellers, uh, there's more sellers, et cetera, et cetera. And this is not even taking into account people potentially defaulting on their loans, okay? So if more and more people default on their loans, that has a huge impact on the uh, on the economy that has a huge impact on the housing property market. Now, there is a silver lining to all this. This is all good news for potential buyers, okay? So it's probably worthwhile if you've just saved a load of money over the last sort of five years and you've got a bank balance that's to be envied of, then it's probably worthwhile monitoring the market, get your pre-approvals and paperwork ready, and then pounce towards the end of the year, maybe. But like all things, it's hard to predict. No one knows what the future holds. So, you know, take these articles that you read with a grain of salt, but I thought it'd be interesting to discuss that in this episode, which is really home buying related. So let's get on to the main topic. What are the rules of buying a home? In episode two, we talked about the mortgage tips and tricks. It's the very basic things uh, that you can do to try and enhance your mortgage experience, um, maybe even negotiate a better rate, particularly with the new RBA rates being lower. Has your bank passed on the full 0.25% rate cut? If they haven't, well, maybe it's time to look around. I know my bank has, which is good. So if they haven't passed it on, there's no real reason to stick around with them unless you get other benefits from them like other discounts, insurance discounts, etc., etc. In episode 11, we talked about how to buy a home with your head and not your heart. And in that, we talk about dealing with real estate agents, the location elements, the building inspections, uh, the property value market, etc., etc. So that's more about the actual process of buying a home. And in this episode, we'll discuss some of the rule of thumbs when it comes to buying a home in terms of how to calculate your affordability. What is a safe, affordable uh, home that you can borrow? Okay, so... Let's talk about that. Now, the way to calculate your affordability is not by using borrowing power calculators online. Now, before I bought my first home, I used to use borrowing power calculators um, back in the day. This is more than 10 years ago. And basically, they're rubbish because they're too aggressive. They probably end up borrowing more than what you can afford, which increases the risk of mortgage defaults. So when it comes to financial principles um, of calculating how much you can borrow, what is a safe borrowing capacity uh, for buying a home, there are three basic rules of thumbs which you can employ. The first rule is called the 28-36 rule. The second rule is called the 30% solution. 
And the third rule is called the 25% method. Now, this was popularized by Dave Ramsey. This, this is more American-focused, okay? So let's start with the first one. What is the 2836 rule? Well, basically, um, it's about the total amount of debt an individual or household should take on in relation to their household income. The rule is simple. It states that a household spend only about 28% of their gross monthly income on total housing expenses and a total of 36% of their total gross monthly income on total debt servicing. Now, this is based on gross income, not after tax. So some mortgage lenders use this rule to calculate borrowing capacity because the stats are anything more is likely to lead to higher risk of debt defaults, which means there's an inability to pay back the loan. Personally, I prefer to use the after-tax rule. I'll talk a little bit about my own personal rules later on in this podcast episode, uh, and I use the 30% for mortgage after-tax rule. But that's just my rule. You know, it's something that I've used um, all my life um, that's helped me sort of calculate how much I can afford in terms of buying a principal place of residence for myself. So what does the 28% of gross income include when it comes to um, uh, household income and the amount of um, mortgage repayments that you can afford on a monthly basis? That includes the mortgage, which is the principal and interest includes the insurance costs, building, home and contents, includes the property taxes, council rates, water costs, sewerage costs, utilities, which are fixed, so that excludes electricity, gas, telephone and internet, and it also includes general small maintenance of the home. So it doesn't just include the mortgage, principal and interest, so you've got to be extremely careful that you factor in things like body corporates and other property taxes as well. Now, what does the remaining 8% include? So remember, the first 28% is what you can afford to pay for your mortgage and the household expenses for the house. What about the rest of the 8%, which is the 36%? So where does the 36% come in? Well, 28 plus 8 is 36%. And basically, they're saying the other 8% can be used for other consumer debts. So car loans, personal loans, or any consumer debt, such as credit cards, etc., etc. Now, If you've been a listener for a long time from a podcast channel, you know I hate debt. I absolutely hate consumer debt. So just don't borrow money for credit cards, personal loans, or cars. It's a waste. It's a retirement killer. It's a wealth killer. Try and save up the money, invest, and just pay cash for those things. Don't use a credit card and pay interest on it. Now, I'm a bit of a hypocrite. I do have a credit card, but I can gladly tell you since I became a, um, actually, since I was a medical student, uh, I've always had a credit card, but I've never actually paid interest on it over the last, you know, 12 plus years. So, um, in fact, I never have. So, uh, I do use it. I use it for the points, but I'm extremely disciplined. That's not to say that you can't use it. So, I do flex my sort of uh, rules about that. But, you know, if you're not sure, if you're not disciplined enough, I think having a credit card is just asking for trouble. Okay, so let's use an example to calculate the 2836 rule. Let's assume you have a monthly income of $5,000 gross. Okay, that's gross. That's before taxes. 28% of that is around $1,400. And that's what you can spend per month on the mortgage the costs and the house costs, okay? Then the 8% will be the other debts, which is around $400. So the question then becomes, what happens if you have no other debts? Can you spend the 36% of your gross income 
just on the mortgage. The temptation is then to use the extra 8%, 28 plus 8, and add it to the mortgage costs. So then your mortgage allowance becomes $1,800 per month. Now, I don't completely disagree with this thinking, but I think it's risky. It makes sense to save the 8% and just use the 28% for mortgage and home cost, but that's just me. So what I'm trying to explain is that Keep to the 28% rule of your gross income. And then if you don't have any other debts for the 8% left over, save it, invest it. Don't um, don't borrow uh, you know 8% more, if that makes any sense, to try and pay off your mortgage, okay? So that's the 28-36 rule. Now, the second rule of thumb is called the 30% solution. This is really, really simple. Do not spend more than 30% of your gross income monthly for mortgage and housing expenses. And the housing expenses we've talked about previously, the property taxes, the fixed utilities, the home and contents insurance, the interest payments, the principal payments, etc., etc. So using the example before of a monthly gross income of $5,000, you can't spend more than $1,500 for your mortgage and housing expenses. Now, the advantage of this rule is it's extremely simple, but the disadvantage of this rule is it doesn't really tell you how much of your income you can use to pay off other debts. But in this podcast episode, we're only talking about home buying principles. We're not really talking about how to manage budget, budgets and how to manage other debts. But in this particular rule, it doesn't give you a framework to use to, uh, you know, what percentage of your income that you can actually use to pay off other debts. But the advantage is you can assume you shouldn't have any other debt. Remember, we hate consumer debt. In that case, the other 70% is yours. Once you pay the 30% into the mortgage, the other 70% is yours, which means you can save it, you can invest it, you can use it for other household expenses. Um, but you know, if you've listened to my podcast, you try and save about 20% of your after-tax income. But if you really want to save 70% of your gross income, great. That's fantastic. I quite like rules which are simple, and this one is simple enough for anyone to implement. And that's it. That's called the 30% solution. Now, the last method, which um, you might find useful, is the Dave Ramsey popularized method. That is the 25% method. Dave Ramsey talks about it all the time. Um, now, Dave Ramsey is a financial sort of expert overseas based in, um, I think it's Tennessee, the south, uh, southern state of, um, of the United States. He's a bit of a hillbilly, a bit of a right-wing sort of you know, quote unquote, nutbag, but um, but I think his financial principles, which are very very conservative, um, I found quite useful. Um, so it might come in a bit hardcore for some of the liberal Australians that uh, we tend to have in Australia. We're, we're much more liberal country, much more open. Um, but I think he's, if you just stick to his finances, I think he, he says things that are very, very useful. Some of the stuff that he says is a bit outlandish. You know, you can get 12% return on your portfolio perpetually and all that sort of stuff. He makes it sound as if it's really easy to do that. I just don't think life is that easy when it comes to investing. But basically, he says you shouldn't buy a home which costs more than 25% of your after-tax monthly income. And he also says the mortgage should be 15 years, fixed interest rates, and not 30 years. Now, he's aiming for the American market where the mortgages and the house prices are much lower than what it is in Australia. I think you can get a nice house in America for about quarter million dollars. 
Um, you're not going to get anything in Melbourne for that price. Uh, probably about you know 50, 60 k's from downtown. Probably not even that, to be honest. So, you know, take it with a grain of salt. And that's why I say this is more American focused. This particular rule. Um, so, if you don't know, um, you know, Dave Ramsey, as I said, I find his podcast quite good for debt reduction strategies. He's pretty hardcore, conservative from the south, so it might be a bit hardcore for some Aussies, as we're very, very liberal down here. But just stick to his financial principles, not all of his religious stuff that he talks about. Uh, I'm not particularly religious, to be honest, so um, I sort of ignore all that. So using the example of the $5,000 per month gross income again, uh, if you go to paycalculator.com.au, which is a very useful website, I use it all the time to calculate my after-tax pay as a worst-case scenario, um, the after-tax income per month would be $3,695. Um, therefore, 15% uh, of that... Oh, sorry, 25% of that is um, $923. Um, so I don't know where you live in Australia, but you know if you can get a house for $923 in any of the major metropolitan areas uh, for a mortgage cost of that much on a monthly basis, uh, I think you're dreaming. But that's what the rules suggest. It's almost impossible even to rent in Australia for that uh, price on a monthly basis. So for Australia, the rule is not really practical, particularly if you're earning only $5,000. But if you have a $50,000 per month income, of course, the rule works quite nicely. Uh, now, if you use the average income uh, of $86,000 in Australia, that gives you an after-tax income of about $5,000. Then it might work out really well. So using this rule, it's 25% of that, which is around $1,500 in mortgage fees. Yeah, you could possibly squeeze in a house for $1,500 per month, but it's still very, very difficult, okay? And to do that for a 15-year uh, fixed interest rate mortgage, uh, I think it's going to be a bit difficult. But again, these are all just guidelines. It really depends on your income. So I'm using a relatively low income uh, to calculate these figures just to give you more of a realistic answer. So the three rules I mentioned are just a guideline. So just to reiterate, the three rules are the 28-36 rule, the 30% solution, and the 25% um, method, okay? So these are all the basic principles and rules that you can use when it comes to try and calculating how much you can afford to buy a home. You need to work out what's best for you, okay? There's no one-size-fits-all, so you need to work out what is the best solution and best rules for your own personal finances. But whatever you do, don't buy too much home. Some Australians are committing 50% of their after-tax income to buying a home because there's a frenzy. There used to be a frenzy. There still is a frenzy. The Australian dream is everyone needs to buy a big five-bedroom, double-story, five-bathroom home with a double garage. Okay. Now, just a bit of fun statistic. Australia has one of the largest um, homes in the world. Our average home size is humongous. Okay. So a lot of our houses are much bigger than uh, Canada and North America. Okay. Um, so we love big houses. We love big land. But um, you know, it's just risky maneuver to try and try and fulfil that sort of Aussie dream of owning a mansion. Okay. So uh, so be very very careful when you calculate your affordability. Um, so, so there is definitely a thing called buying too much home. So be careful and be wary of that. When it comes to my own personal finances, what budgeting rules do I use when it comes to budget and therefore when it comes to calculating how much I can afford in terms of buying a home? Okay, so it's quite simple. I use a 30-30-20-20 rule. You might have heard me talk about it before. I might have heard me uh, mention it on Facebook, etc. So what is the 30-30-20-20 rule, okay? 
So my rules are always based on after-tax income. That's why I say you always try and save 20% of your after-tax income because that's income that you see, that's income that you feel, that's income that you can actually potentially spend, save, or invest. So the first 30% of your after-tax income should be for mortgage expenses. Okay, I don't think you should spend more than 30% of after-tax income on your mortgage. And if you're already doing that, then I think you're risky of defaulting on that mortgage. The second 30% of your after-tax income should be for household expenses, including utilities, food, school fees, etc., etc. That includes eating out. Okay, The 20% of your after-tax income um, should be for savings. So that's the 30, 30, and now we're up to the 20% saving after-tax income. We all know that. I've tried to preach it uh, for the last 12 months since I've started this podcast. So hopefully that's in your ingrained in your head. Okay, so try and save up to 20% of your after-tax income. I think anything less, if you're doing that now, that's great, but try and work it up to 20%. And the last 20% is the after-tax income should be for emergency funds if you haven't filled that up. Now, I'll talk about at least three to six months. In my case, it's about 12 months because I'm a bit conservative, but work out what length of time that you need emergency funds for and try and top up the emergency funds. Now, if that's fully funded, then perhaps the 20% of your after-tax income, the last 20%, can be used for things like luxuries or wants. So, you know, that means going on a holiday, uh, perhaps, you know, saving for that car, or perhaps, you know, um, uh, going on a hot air balloon ex- experience, or whatever it is, okay? So I, I, I'm, I, I'm not saying you need to be absolutely stingy, but if you want to be stingy, if you want to be frugal, if you want to do FIRE, which is financial independence, retired early, then, yeah, you can save that extra 20%. So then it becomes a 30-30-40 rule. That is 30% mortgage, 30% household expenses, and 40% saving. And I we've talked about the savings rates in my previous... Um, previous podcast as well. So um, that's the 30-30-20-20 rule. This is a general guideline, which I try and utilize my own personal finances. Um, I think having guidelines and, and, and policies and procedures and, and personal finance concepts is really, really important because it gives you a benchmark. It gives you um, a disciplined structure and you're more likely to be disciplined. You're more likely to set yourself a benchmark. But of course, it's got to be tailored to your own personal needs. So you might want to discuss these rules with your accountant or your financial advisor to see what they think about it. I'm not a financial advisor. My job is to try and educate you on the basic principles of finance. And your job is to take those principles, learn about it, get educated and try and apply them in your own personal finance. So, in summary, episode 40, we talked an article about the housing market, the RBA interest rates being lower, the housing declines, the triple whammy effect, and the economy woos. The second thing we discussed is the three methods of house buying when it comes to calculating your affordability. Method number one, the 2836 rule. Method number two is a 30% solution. And method number three is the 25% after-tax income rule, which was popularized by Dave Ramsey, who's an American financial expert. The third thing we talked about is what are my budgeting rules in general, the 30-30-20-20 rule. And the fourth thing we've always talked about in every episode is pay yourself first, save 20% of your after-tax income and save it, invest it, reinvest the dividends, automate the process and do it for the long term, 20, 30, 40 years and you're more likely to be wealthy than you ever imagined in the first place. 
Thanks for listening and thanks for all the comments and Facebook messages I get. I get a lot of private Facebook messages. Fair enough. People don't want to post their public uh, messages about their finances and I completely accept that. Um, If you have any questions, feel free to comment on the CastBox app as well or even online. And uh, until next time, stay safe. This is Dev Raga, Personal Finance. This is episode 40, signing off. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 